Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome back to Out of the Cold, the podcast that dives deep into unsolved and solved cold cases in North Texas. I'm Deanna Boyd. Today, we're continuing to explore the October 2011 disappearance of 16-year-old Margaret Ann Kowali. If this is the first you're hearing about Margaret Ann's case, stop now and go back and listen first to episode 15, part one of this particular case. So when I last left you, Arlington police had begun investigating Margaret Ann's disappearance and quickly came to the conclusion that her adoptive father, Gabriel Quatley, was somehow involved. Gabriel had initially reported Margaret Ann as a runaway to Arlington police, but later told police that he'd received emails indicating the teen had really been kidnapped by a man named Alex Ramos and was being forced into prostitution in Mexico. But police say those emails turned out to have been sent from Gabriel's workplace, a Chase Bank located less than a mile from the police department. A search of Gabriel's work computer also found evidence that he had been embezzling money from a Chase customer's account. So Arlington police had been holding off arresting Gabriel in connection with the case because while they suspected he was lying to investigators and knew exactly what happened to Margaret Ann, he was still talking to police. Sergeant Mark Simpson, now retired, says they hoped that through these talks, he would eventually reveal the truth. If I've got a kidnapped child or something like that, my default position is that until you can prove otherwise, my assumption is they're alive. And I keep working from that position until I have proof of something else. On this one, um, even though we didn't have a body, there was absolutely nothing to indicate that this little girl was alive. And there was a lot of things you could read into it that saying that, that um, she met with a bad end. But by April 5th, 2002, after a number of interviews with Gabriel, it had grown quite clear he wasn't going to provide investigators with what they'd hoped for. So detectives write up an arrest warrant accusing Gabriel of aggravated kidnapping, a second-degree felony punishable by two to 20 years in prison and a $10,000 fine. He's arrested on that warrant the next morning in front of his home. He doesn't put up a fight and once again waives his rights and agrees to speak to investigators. 
In this interview, Simpson says Gabriel is much more animated than usual. He grows angry in some of his responses to investigators' questions, claiming Margaret Ann had disrespected his authority and created chaos in his life and household. Now, during the interview, Simpson says Lenore tries to bluff Gabriel into revealing more. Due to the previous allegations of sexual abuse, Lenore tells Gabriel that a week before her disappearance, Margaret Ann had made a video recording in which she accuses Gabriel of raping her. Gabriel denied, denied the allegation, and he, of course he countered by saying that she'd been brainwashed by her uncle. Um, and Gabriel went on to say that Margaret had turned into a slut and was having boys over the house who were, this is a quote, her. Lenore asked Gabriel for a DNA sample, but he refuses. So while the interview is continuing, Simpson's watching from another room. Detective Lenore is excellent at interviewing interrogation. But this thing got to the point to where it was like Lenore was talking to him in English, and he was responding in French. He was just off the wall with his answers, you know, where he was coming from. And uh, so Detective Lenore finally terminated the interview. Uh, and Tommy doesn't like to give up. This would be the last time that Gabriel talks to Arlington police. He's booked into jail with his bail set at $250,000. And though Arlington police have now filed their case to the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office, they're far from done with their investigation. They continue to interview friends of Margaret Ann, extended family members, and work associates of Gabriel. They even work with Mexican officials to identify and interview a man who Gabriel eventually identifies as helping him in the search for Margaret Ann. Police also conduct more searches. They search Gabriel's car, a 1993 Chrysler New Yorker, looking for signs of blood, potential murder weapons. They searched his house again, looking for papers written by Margaret Ann for handwriting comparisons, signs of human body fluids on her mattress, and soil samples. We were out in the garage grabbing up shovels and picks and stuff that could have been used potentially um, the barrier, some type of a clandestine grave, you know, anything that we can do. Meanwhile, Gabriel's defense attorney at that time, Kenneth Hartless, files a motion asking the judge to set a reasonable bond for Gabriel. A hearing is held on the matter on May 1st, 2002, a transcript of which I was able to obtain. And while Nanette would not respond to my repeated request for an interview, you do get some insight into her mindset through her testimony at this hearing. Pretty early on, Heartless asked her if she believes her husband is involved in her daughter's disappearance. My husband never kidnapped my daughter, she responded. Before Margaret Ann's disappearance, she testifies, she'd been sleeping with her daughter and Gabriel sleeping on the couch because of their fear that Margaret Ann was going to leave. She says she and Gabriel had pleaded with Margaret Ann not to leave, telling her she'd have a better future if she just stayed at home. She recalls the October 11th day that she went to go pick up Margaret Ann at school, but saw Gabriel there instead. I saw him look so devastated. That's when I found out that Margaret Ann left. She says she has no doubts that her husband will stay in Tarrant County if released from jail. He would not leave this country, she testifies. I know that we will. We will face whatever circumstances that he is going to go through. He will face whatever the court will ask us for him to defend himself. Yeah, he will stay here and he will stay with me. So then Greg Miller, the prosecutor, 
starts questioning Nanette. And she tells him that she truly believes in her heart that Margaret Ann left with Alex Ramos. They talk about a phone message she'd received at her job in Dallas on October 26, 2001, Nanette's birthday, and just weeks after Margaret Ann's disappearance. She says the caller ID indicated the call had come from her home phone, leading her to believe Gabriel had called. But on the message, it's her daughter's voice she hears. Mom, I'm just call. Margaret Ann can be heard saying before the message abruptly cuts off. I said that's my daughter, and I called my husband right away. Gabe, Margaret Ann just called. Margaret Ann, he said. What do you mean she just called? The problem, she testifies, is that the call was coming from her house, and yet Gabriel was the only one home. Nanette says when she questions Gabriel how that could be, he tells her someone must have basically hacked into their phone line. She says they even called the phone company to look into the matter. Miller asked Nanette that isn't it true the phone company investigation revealed the call really did originate from your own house? They didn't say anything like that, Nanette responds. When Miller reminds her she's under oath, she changes her answer to that she couldn't remember the phone company mentioning that. Lenore tells me that investigators determined Gabriel had apparently used previous recordings of his daughter to leave the message. Miller asked Nanette if she was aware that Gabriel had hired private investigators to find Margaret Ann and had taken out a $30,000 home equity loan. Nanette responds that she had instructed Gabriel to do whatever it took to find Margaret Ann after it became quite clear that police could do nothing to help. She said her husband told her that he was going to borrow some money, but added that he was not going to tell her what he planned to do with that money. And whatever purpose he did for that loan to find my daughter, he will do whatever it takes and I will agree on that, she testifies, adding he had her permission to do whatever. The life of my daughter is the most important thing in our life, Nanette continued. That 30000 is nothing compared to the life of my daughter. So Heartless, Gabriel's defense attorney at that time, would tell the judge that Gabriel has ties to the community. He owns an auto shop with his brother Antonio in Arlington, his parents live locally. He's basically estranged from any family he still has in Mexico. And he's not going to go anywhere if released on bond. Miller asked the judge to keep the bond the same, reminding the court of evidence that Alex Ramos was in Nebraska before, during, and after Margaret Ann's disappearance. He tells the judge that, yeah, $250,000 bond may seem somewhat excessive in an ordinary kidnapping case. But this is no ordinary case. It's the state's position, and we intend to pursue this further, Miller tells the judge, that in all probability, this young lady is in fact dead. The judge rules on behalf of the prosecutors. He finds the $250,000 bond is reasonable, and even adds that if Gabriel is to make bond, he must surrender his passport and wear a GPS monitor. But despite losing, Gabriel ends up making bond on May 6, 2002, just five days later. But his freedom would be short-lived. He's arrested again in June 2002 after a grand jury indicts him not only on the kidnapping charge, but on three charges of tampering with physical evidence for fabricating emails with the intent to alter the course or outcome of the investigation. He's also indicted on one charge of theft between $20,000 and $100,000 for the embezzlement. But once again, he'd make bond and be released. Now, though they had no body, Simpson recalls he and Miller discussed the possibility of pursuing a murder charge in the case. 
Through the years, Tarrant County has occasionally prosecuted someone for murder, even without a body, and won convictions. But they're challenging cases. You know, oftentimes, what you believe and what you can prove, two separate things. When you go to court, nobody cares about what you believe. All they care about is what you can prove. And Greg didn't think that we could, that there was enough that we could convince a jury uh, in, at that particular time that Margaret met her death as a result of a homicide in which Gabriel would have been the suspect. Miller says in addition to not knowing Margaret Ann's location or the circumstances of her demise, pursuing a murder charge in a largely circumstantial case would have been difficult without the help of Margaret Ann's family. Usually when a family member, especially a, a, a young man or a young lady, disappears unexpectedly from a family, it's been my experience that usually those family members are cooperative with law enforcement, trying to get their child, brother, sister back, whoever did. In this case, based on what I was told, uh, by the Arlington Police Department, and some of which I saw firsthand, uh, you didn't have that level of cooperation here with the family of Ann Qualley. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that was due in part to they were afraid of Gabrielle or they were defensive or they, they just truly in their hearts believed that she just ran off with Alex Ramos. But when the fam when a family is presented with you know evidence uh, and documentation and emails and and, and uh, cut and paste photographs and 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 they still um, are defensive and not cooperative with with law enforcement it that certainly doesn't make law enforcement's job any easier on the case and it and it makes it exponentially more difficult to prosecute a case under those circumstances. Now, the prosecutors would actually offer Gabriel a plea deal in December 2003, plead guilty to the theft charge in exchange for five years in prison, and to the tampering cases in exchange for three. But he rejects this offer. So Miller and fellow prosecutor Alan Levy decide to take Gabriel to trial first on the theft charge. Miller says there was some strategy behind that decision. One primary legal reason was we thought it was a very straightforward case. Uh, it was a what prosecutors sometimes refer to as a document case or a paper case, paper trail case, and we could we had all the all the necessary documents to prove that over a continuing course of time that Gabriel Qualley embezzled um, thousands of dollars from accounts. Um, from customers at Chase Bank in Arlington, Texas. But there was another reason, Miller says. When we, the DA's office, became involved in this case, our sense was that that some of the family members were afraid of Gabriel. And it was, you know, we talked about that quite a bit. And we kind of felt that if we could convict Gabriel and, and have a prison sentence assessed that with him being in prison that per, perhaps, um, you know, family members would be a little more free to speak with us.
So Gabriel goes on trial for the theft charge in May of 2004. And there's a lot of public interest. First of all, you've got the big hitters at the DA's office prosecuting the case. At that time, Miller was one of the deputy chiefs of the DA's criminal division. His partner, Alan Levy, was the chief of the criminal division. Now, Miller admits it had been a number of years since he'd last tried someone on felony theft. But clearly, everyone recognized what was at stake here and weren't taking any chances. I think it's a fair statement to, to say that in the DA's office, we were certainly concerned about the well-being of Ann Quatley and the circumstances of her last being seen on October 11th, 2001. Star Telegram even sends a reporter to cover the trial from beginning to end. And it just so happens that reporter that covered it in 2004 was my husband, Tony. So there's a little shout out to him. Jury selection begins on May 10th, 2004. And are you giving like jurors during Bordier any hints about the kidnapping or any of this? No, or I, absolutely not. The, the, the jury Bordier selection that I did was just, uh, quite frankly, a plain vanilla theft embezzlement jury selection. There was, uh, from the state's perspective and jury selection, and even, even the defense perspective and jury selection, there was absolutely no mention of the name Ann Qualley, the disappearance of Ann Qualley, a, a parallel investigation into the disappearance of Ann Qualley, nothing like that was raised. So Alan Levy gives a real straightforward opening statement for the state. He's summarizing for the jury the facts and circumstances that prosecutors are going to be presenting during the trial. Basically, that Gabriel, while working as a fraud investigator for Chase Bank, stole more than $20,000 from a Turkish couple's account transferred it to an account belonging to his niece, and then withdrew cash from ATM machines from that account. He tells jurors they're going to hear about the numerous false statements Gabriel made about the theft and just how ridiculous they were. Then attorney Kathy Lothorpe, who is defending Gabriel along with attorney Leon Haley, gives her opening statement. And much to the shock of Miller and others, Lothorpe tells jurors straight out of the box that this isn't a theft case. She points over to Miller Levy and tells jurors that these two prosecutors sitting over there think her client is responsible for Margaret Ann's disappearance. Miller recalls being stunned. I had never encountered that up into those years that that would have been said. But it was, it was said, so it was out there. So Lothorpe went on to say, according to a Star-Telegram article about the trial, that Gabriel's brother-in-law is behind all the allegations against her client, from the embezzlement case to the disappearance of Margaret Ann Quatley. She tells jurors that the state's case is circumstantial and asks jurors to consider that other employees could have stolen the money by logging into a bank computer with Gabriel's password. Now, the way criminal trials work, prosecutors cannot bring up extraneous information during the guilt-innocence phase of the trial. Only the punishment phase of a trial after a defendant has been found guilty. But here, the defense attorney just brought it up herself. And because she did, State District Judge Elizabeth Berry allowed attorneys on both sides to raise issues related to the kidnapping case. Had she not opened that door, had she not brought that up, could, could the state have mentioned any of that during the guilt-innocence Absolutely phase? not. And we, we would not have mentioned it. I mean, so from the 
from the very beginning of the trial, the jury is heard that a young lady named Ann Quatley has disappeared and is to date not been found, more or less. You know, juries are juries are pretty smart people. I mean, they they usually can connect dots pretty quickly. So in between hearing evidence that Quatley embezzled from the bank, jurors are also hearing some about Margaret Ann's disappearance. Margaret Ann's older brother, Michael, is 21 at this point and an Army combat medic serving in Iraq. He comes back just to testify in Gabriel's trial. He testifies that his sister had previously told him she wanted to run away from home because Gabriel's efforts to make her a tennis star were physically and emotionally abusive. But he said he doubts she ran away because all of her clothing, makeup, and personal belongings were left behind. When asked what he thought happened to his sister, Michael testified, I blame Gabriel. I'm just hoping what I think didn't happen. Nanette, however, still maintains her husband's innocence in Margaret Ann's disappearance when called to testify the next day. Whatever it takes, the life of my daughter is more important than anything else, Nanette testifies. Gabriel felt the same way. So on May 17, 2004, the jury begins deliberating on the theft charge. And after only about an hour, they return a guilty verdict on the third degree felony. Gabriel faces anywhere from probation to 10 years in prison. During the punishment phase of the trial, prosecutors call Tommy Lenore, the lead detective, to testify about Gabriel's many claims regarding Margaret Ann's disappearance and the emails purportedly sent by Margaret Ann that originated from Gabriel's work computer. But as after jurors are shown Lenore's two-hour videotaped interview of Gabriel that took place on April 2, 2002, that something unexpected happens. Gabriel passes Leon Haley, one of his defense attorneys, a note reading, tell Mr. Miller I'm ready to take the 10 years. Suddenly, Gabriel wants a plea deal. Lenore still remembers sitting on the stand, seeing Gabriel's face as the jury watched the videotaped interview and listened to his far-fetched claims. It's one thing to tell a story and to be the author and to continue to tell stories. It's another thing when you have to sit back and listen to what you said. And I think he was in a position where he actually had the opportunity and was in a position where he had to listen to his stories, digest those stories, and actually, in my opinion, compare them to uh, the truth. And I think uh, collectively that's what resulted in his, his plea during the middle of trial. Haley confirmed to the Star-Telegram reporter after the trial that Gabriel had decided to ask for the plea after seeing the jury's reaction to his videotaped interview. He knew they weren't buying his story, Haley remarks. So the defense asked for 10 years in return for Gabriel pleading guilty to all of the pending cases, and they want the sentences to run concurrently. Miller says no. Well, he, he wasn't in the driver's seat at that point. We were... What they ultimately agree on is for Gabriel to plead guilty to the theft in return for a 10-year prison sentence and also to the three pending tampering with evidence charges. He'd get 10 years on the tampering convictions too, but that sentence would be stacked on top of the theft sentence, giving him a combined 20 years. In exchange for this plea, prosecutors agree to dismiss the aggravated kidnapping charge without prejudice meaning that as long as they were within the statute of limitations, they could still refile the case if additional evidence surfaced. 
So on May 18, 2004, Gabriel changes his not guilty plea to guilty in the theft case and pleads guilty to the three counts of tampering with evidence. Margaret Ann's tennis coach, who'd been told she might be called to testify in the trial, was among those watching. We sat on the back row and uh, watched Nanette fall to the ground when he was convicted, you know, when they when they sentenced him. I was just I just thought to myself, why? You know, if it was my daughter, and I have a daughter, and that's why I'm like, I would be, like, would not be stopping the search. Like, ever. 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 So Gabriel is sent off to prison. He gets released on parole on February 11, 2009, and remained on parole until September 28, 2016. That Gabriel was convicted on the tampering charges and spent some years behind bars didn't feel like a win to Miller. We were happy that he was going to go to prison because, as you know, I mentioned earlier, we were hoping that once he was gone, that he would, you know, that would be the motivation for some family members to come forward with some additional information. That didn't pan out, but but there's really no joy in this because, you know, Margaret Ann Qualley is you know, at, back in 2000, May of 2004, was still missing, and she's still missing today. And uh, that's there's no joy there. So today, Gabriel has got multiple Facebook pages and frequently posts videos on YouTube showing him lifting weights and helping train young women in powerlifting. In an August 2013 blog still posted online, he describes himself as a former powerlifting and Olympic-style lifter national champion who teaches people how to be their very best in their sports. It's clear he's aiming for female clientele, advising his blog readers that if they want to develop a body like the ladies on his site, to call him. The blog ends with six photographs of a brunette woman, scantily dressed in bikinis and posing seductively. On another website called About Me, Gabriel describes himself as a bilingual seasoned professional who's been helping businesses for more than 30 years, researching and reviewing and polishing documents to enhance their professional content. He writes he's also a part-time instructor at Tarrant County College, but doesn't mention what he teaches. The college didn't respond to my inquiries about whether that's true. That site includes a picture of Gabriel wearing sunglasses and a black baseball cap and muscle shirt. So I tried various ways to contact Gabriel for an interview. All were ignored. Recently, I visited an auto shop on Fort Worth's east side, owned by Gabriel's brother, Antonio. Gabriel had previously worked there as well, manning the front desk, but according to Antonio, now works full-time taking care of their elderly father. Shortly after meeting with Antonio, who promised to pass along another message to Gabriel for me that I was hoping to speak with him, I got an email. This is Gabriel Quatley, read. My brother told me that you were looking for me. I am sorry, but I can't talk. I signed a plea, and my attorney explicitly told me not to say anything to anyone. No further correspondence is expected. So while Gabriel wouldn't talk to me, his brother did. And Antonio has his own theories on who was behind Margaret Ann's disappearance. Theories he said he shared multiple times with Detective Lenore in the months after Margaret Ann first went missing. 
I told them that uh, I think Nanette had something to do with it. Antonio said Margaret Ann was a sweet kid. She'd been good friends with his oldest daughter. And she was an avid tennis player who often played with Gabrielle. But uh, all of a sudden, one day she disappeared. The detective Leonel couldn't find anything, but he focused on my brother, on my brother. I mean, Nanette is the mother and she didn't care. She didn't act, I mean, isn't that suspicious? I mean, my my daughter goes missing, I go crazy. I turned the world around to find my daughter, and she didn't care. Antonio says he thinks police unfairly targeted his brother, had tunnel vision. My brother is kind of a weird person. He's just a weird person, but that's probably why the police didn't like him. You know, police, they don't, they don't really do the right job sometimes. They just concentrate somebody they don't like. Lenore says Antonio expressed suspicions to police about both Nanette and Gabriel, as he recalls but did not provide factual evidence to incriminate or exclude either party. We did not ignore any viable person of interest, including Nanette. Uh, as far as Gabriel being weird, our focus uh, on the investigation is based on facts and evidence and not an individual's personality or quirkiness. And Lenore said police did fully investigate Nanette. If there had been evidence she'd been involved in her daughter's disappearance or had been tampering with evidence in the case to try to mislead police, she would have been charged, he says. I talked with Annette on several occasions and had our, uh, people from our victim's assistance uh, who are very skilled and very knowledgeable in talking with, uh, with people who are, in fact, uh, victimized in the household. And, and I think everyone came to the conclusion that she was not being deceptive. I, I can't get into her mind, but I would... I would I would guess that she refused to believe it, didn't want to believe it, was in denial. But as far as being a party to uh, the disappearance and, and any foul play with Marguerite, as far as criminally being criminally responsible, there's just no evidence of it. So Nanette and Gabriel are no longer together. Interestingly, however, I could find no record that they ever divorced. On her Facebook page, Nanette frequently shares public posts regarding missing women but yet makes no mention of Margaret Ann. In addition to reaching out to her, I also reached out to other family members, Margaret Ann's brother, her maternal uncle, but they also did not respond to repeated messages from me seeking interviews. Antonio does recall visiting his brother once or twice a month while Gabriel served his prison sentence. Did he come out changed, or is he, was he still the same brother? You know, he's, he's a psychopath now. I mean, he, in, in jail, make him crazy. You should see the way he talks now. It's his bad. Jane doesn't help people. It just makes them sick. Sick-minded. He thinks really, really weird now. Antonio claims Gabriel only pled guilty to the tampering charges because he was betrayed by his defense attorney. I don't know very much about that. I was there on the courthouse, and that was his words. Gaddy betrayed me. He hates Gaddy now. He hates me. I saw a suitor at some point. Yeah, because uh, he, he said he went to jail because of Kathy. In March 2007, from prison, Gabriel did, in fact, file a federal lawsuit against not only Kathy Lothorpe, but prosecutor Greg Miller and a Chase Bank official. He alleged the three conspired together to deprive him of his job and liberty and to slander and defame his character. A judge tossed it out.
So when I ask Antonio what he thinks happened to Margaret Ann, he tells me he doesn't know. He said he was separated from his wife at that time and wasn't especially close to his brother's family, including Margaret Ann. But you don't believe your brother had anything to do with her disappearance? I don't know. I really don't know. No, I don't know, but the only thing I'm telling you is that they missed that chance with uh, Nanette. So I thought that was kind of an interesting, non-committal type of answer. I asked Antonio if he ever just straight out asked his brother if he had something to do with Margaret Ann's disappearance. He says he never asked. So I don't think you kill somebody and you go and tell your brother, hey, I killed this person. Right? I mean, those things that are secret. And I don't ask questions. The last time Antonio said he ever heard from an investigator was in 2006, when investigators visited Gabriel's former home to see if Margaret Ann's body could be buried in the backyard. Even though Gabriel had already gone to prison on the theft and tampering charges, authorities were still bothered that Margaret Ann had never been found. Alan Levy asked Leo Ramirez, an investigator with the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office, to do some more digging around in the case. So Alan asked me to, to go out and check the areas and just see what I can do, see what I can come up with. So Leo began checking fields, creeks, ponds in the area of the Quatley home. He even has a friend search with a cadaver dog in a wooded area near some tennis courts where Gabriel used to practice with Margaret Ann, but it turns up nothing. He made it a habit to drive by the Quatley home where Nanette still lived at that time. I would drive by the house, and one day I drove by the house, and there was a big pile of clothes and mattresses and junk and stuff sitting on the, the curb. And I was like, what the hell is And then uh, I saw a big uh, foreclosure sign or sticker on the door. And I thought, oh, my God. You know, was like, so Ramirez contacts the bank that had foreclosed on the home and gets the bank's permission to go on the property and conduct a search. I did some research, and I found a company that uh, did uh, ground-penetrating uh, radar. So a team goes out to the former Quatley home with this company, and basically they run this equipment that looks like a lawnmower without wheels over the ground, looking for any disturbances in the layers of soil below. They run it over a back patio that had been poured after Margaret Ann's disappearance, but it finds no anomalies. But in the backyard, about five to six feet below the surface, the radar hits on something. It, it, it was in the shape of a, what we thought was a pot. We kept digging, kept digging. It was like, man, we were all excited. And it turned out, it turned out to be, of all the places in Arlington, it was the largest clump of clay. And we were so crestfallen. Antonio admits he was among those watching the news coverage about the dig. Were you watching on TV or did you actually go we're out there? watching on TV. On TV? Yeah, we're watching on TV. They so you were curious? Yes, of course. Everybody's curious, you know. I mean, did he really do it? I don't think he did it. But I don't know, you know. But I don't think he was brought like me. We cannot hurt the dog. We cannot hurt the cat, no animals. We, we were brought to respect every life. And though he's never heard from Margaret Ann's mother or any other family members inquiring about the case, once a year Ramirez still runs an extensive database check looking for any signs of Margaret Ann. 
her social security number pops up somewhere, if she gets a driver's license or a ticket somewhere, maybe a marriage license. I've changed phones maybe seven times since then. I've gone to Afghanistan twice. And in all my, all my phones, her birthday's on the 25th. She disappeared on the 11th. On my phones, her anniversary pops up every year. And I get on the computer and I look up to see if she pops up anywhere. If her name comes up anywhere. A father to three girls. He says he can't help but hold out hope she might be found alive someday. I know I would never give up on looking for my daughter. Simpson, who retired from the Arlington Police Department in 2007, and Lenore, who followed in 2010, both admit they believe Margaret Ann is dead. I, I would love to be wrong. I mean, good Lord, I, I would pray that, I would, that I'm wrong. I just don't think I am. Simpson said while he's glad Gabriel spent some time in prison in connection with the case, he's bothered that Ann was never found. To be a good psychiatrist, you've got to treat it as a calling. It's not a job. Now, yeah, we got him. We got him on the tampering with evidence. But, you know, the, the, the part of me, um, there's a part of me that says that there still needs to be a reckoning of what was done. Simpson, who now teaches for the National Criminal Justice Training Center, put together a presentation on the case in 2015 to share with police and prosecutors from across the nation. Virtually everybody has a hunger over this one. There's a lot, you know, we're going to start over and redo. But this case, this is doable. Um, it needs to be run to its logical conclusion. Though almost 18 years have now passed, Margaret Ann's friends and her tennis coach still wonder about what happened to the girl who simply vanished off the face of the earth. I saw her picture on the missing persons report in the Walmart, and I was like, oh my gosh. That's my girl. I was just like, and my heart just hurts for her because I just, she has no voice. It makes me so mad. And even my girls, they were just, they were just texting me and they were just like, I am still so mad about this. And it's just unsolved and nobody knows what happened. If you have information about the disappearance of Margaret Ann Coatley, please call Investigator Jim Rizzi with the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office at 817-884-1400. Thanks for listening. On a personal note, I am leaving the Star-Telegram to embark on a new career path. It has been my great pleasure to work on this podcast along with my colleague, Steve Wilson, and I thank all of you for listening and your feedback. Please continue to spread the word about the cases featured on this podcast. These families deserve answers. These victims deserve justice. This Out of the Cold episode was produced by Steve Wilson, edited by Tom Johannenmeyer, and written and narrated by me, Deanna Boyd.